Well, my name is Jonathan Land, um, church planter in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, a little less than four hours south of here. Um, we've been going a little over, like, almost three and a half years, not quite. Um, and uh, we were a parachute-style plant um, into Sioux Falls uh, four years ago. And so that's where there's a, a few things I want to, like, I'll kind of update you on, tell you about where we are, who we are, um, what our church looks like, and, and how some of these things have played out. So um, the first one would be that, um, you know, what I want to share with you is not is not being shared out of expertise. It's it's shared out of failure. Um, and so, if I could just like illustrate anecdotally every single one of these principles that I think have been helpful for us and for the life of our church, um, that would be like a three day conference all day. I would just be like, hey, and then I did this wrong, and then we did this wrong, and then we made this mistake. Um, and so that's the first thing. Uh, the the second thing I would say is um, I hope some of this stuff is not new to you. Like, that's actually a good thing. If I, if I bore you, like, oh, yeah, I knew that, then that's actually a victory. Um, and some of these principles are really good. Every time I, I get a chance to share the gospel with people in my church, part of me hopes they're going to go, man, you're right, I knew that. Um, as, a, as opposed to, you know, if they've been in our church for a while and I'm like, you know, Jesus took your place. And they're like, what? I'd never heard that before, right? So my hope, hope some of this is, is incredibly old. Um, and then the last thing I would say is I want to be committed to that. We want to be really unoriginal. There's nothing new under the sun. Um, and so this is the part where, man, like the, this is, this has been strange. Noel asked me last year to speak, to, to do a breakout, to consider doing a breakout at the, um, at the Lansing conference. And I'm like, I have nothing to say, um, nothing to offer because the majority of the people in our network, um, in our region specifically have taught me almost everything I know, all the healthy things that have happened in our church. Um, and there's some really healthy things going on in the life of our church have been a direct result of the investment of other uh, leaders and church planners and pastors in our region, and it's it's fantastic. And I got a chance to encourage Kurt four years ago before he before he even launched. Um, Kurt let a breakout um, for um, church plants that hadn't launched yet. They were like in small group stage, and it was just I was like, and I was like, yes, yes, more, more, you know. And so, um, and so there's there's a sense in which like I have nothing to offer. I may just regurgitate a lot of the stuff that most of you in this room and other people in that are here this this weekend have already invested into me. Uh, and I'll pass it on to you. So that's my goal. Um, we'll make a run for it, and we'll see what happens. So the, the title of my talk and the where I really want to go is to talk about a healthy and biblical godly influence for, uh, a, of, the, of a church planter. And I want to delineate between what we would think of as a person of influence who's a leader as opposed to a person of influence who is a manipulator. And the place I want to start with is is out of Second Samuel chapter twenty three. Um, one of the best places to begin to think about what influence is. When I say leader, I don't necessarily mean. Um, oh, hey, we're going to go to sleep now. Um, I, I don't. Uh, I don't necessarily mean um, that that it's necessarily the person on the stage. Or um, I, I'm not trying to in this in our time together. I'm not trying to like give you all sorts of tips to be a better leader, or to expand your leadership. There are tons of amazing resources out there. What I really want to talk about is the spiritual formation of a leader. I want to talk about like, what are your motivations? Where are you going? Where are you taking people? And I want to give you some principles and hopefully just start some self-evaluation. Like why, why are you doing what you're doing? And why, do, why, did, why has God given you this influence? And what are you doing with it? And so the first one I'm sure is like influence isn't necessarily bad. Right, God gives influence through nature and nurture. Uh, but the second thing I want to push on is that you will either use that influence to glorify God or to glorify yourself. So, Second Samuel uh, chapter twenty-three. It's one of the last things 
Uh, this is the last words of David, um, and, he, and he gives this, this long, this intro to this oracle. He's like, you know, the word came to me, and God's chosen, and, and you know, and this is my, it just really frames it massively about how important these words are. And he says, um, he says really clearly, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So the first thing I want to show you, like the, most, most people, um, maybe we're in this room the same way, most people have a problem with authority uh, because it's either been wielded badly or it's caused some damage. But I want to show you like authority in and of itself, influence and leaders, they're not bad. This is something God uses. And, and, and David is... As, remember, this is, the, this is the appetizer for Jesus talking here, right? Um, this is a guy who, who had authority. He was a leader and kind of planted the seeds to make you wish there was a better leader, right? That's, this is the role of David. And he's saying, look, when someone rules justly over people, there's a couple things that happen. And then toward the end of the chapter, he says this, but worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So here's what I would say. Leaders, as we're going to delineate this over and over again, this, this picture between a ruler, a God, one who leads in the fear of God, a leader gives illumination and life. A manipulator, a worthless person in this particular case, causes conflict and makes, and uh, uh, manipulators make, cause conflict and make you want to fight them. Did you catch that? Like, uh, uh, even now in our time together, if, if what I'm doing helps, right? If I can like lead you towards something that's helpful, you'll, you'll leave and go like, aha, there, there'll be like a darkness lifted. There'll be a light, right? Um, and then, and you'll, you'll be like, oh man, you know, this, it's dawned on me or, and you, you'll feel like you have a, you'll have a joy in life, right? Whereas the opposite of that is if I'm not, if I'm like manipulating you, I'm using you to glorify myself, then you'll want to arm yourself and spear me. Right? That's what it says. Like you, like, and, and like you get that, have you met that kind of a person or an influential person? And you're like, everyone likes this person. And I somehow want to like, I want to, it says you want to, I want to arm myself with iron and a spear. <laughs> I don't want to deal with this person without a weapon. And so this is the picture. I think we see leaders give illumination and life manipulators cause conflict and make you want to fight them. Now, I'm going to give you 14 different principles that I think are like principles for spiritual formation of a godly leader. Um, and as a result, um, uh, hopefully these will kind of check some things in your own motivation. Um, but I don't want you to feel the pressure to write all this stuff down. Um, the notes, I'll, I'm going to give you a link at the end of this time, um, and it's going to be our website. You'll be able to gr- grab this whole thing, um, and I'll have an email address up there as well if you want to ask any questions or I can send you, just ping me. Um, so don't feel the pressure to like, oh, I want to get all this down. Um, just, I want you to listen. If there's some nugget here, take a note. I'll give you the entirety um, of the outline. I'll give you all these notes. Um, it'll be on the last, one of the last things we do, and hopefully we'll have a little bit of time if there's any, any time left for, for some question and answering. So I would say influence is neutral, but you need to understand your influence. And one of the misconceptions about influence is, the, is that either um, it's, it's bad uh, or, that, uh, or there's something else like going on there that, that you should be skeptical or cynical towards, especially the younger you are. And I want to, if, if I could boil this down to one thing, a principle, I have drawn this on a napkin 200 and something times, I think. 
um, to illustrate like this is, and this is something I hope that will serve you. Um, and I want to start when you think about the difference between a leader who glorifies God and a manipulator who glorifies the, themselves. Um, I want to think about this. Like, so imagine these dots are a group of people. Okay. Imagine it's just a, a handful of people in a crowd, right? In a room. Okay. Who's the leader? I want you to think about that. When you immediately look at who, who's the leader? Who do you think of? Like if these were people and this is how they're situated, this is how they're, they're structured, who do you think is the leader? And here's what I found. When you ask someone this question, 99% of the time, they think of the person in the middle. Like almost every single time. They're like, oh yeah, it's the, it's the person in the middle. It's the person in the center. And I would push on you that this is a problem, okay? This is very common, but this is our culture's understanding of influence. You influence people and you draw them to yourself. That's a gospel issue for us because here's the thing, like, unless you're Jesus, being the center of attention is a bad thing for us, right? If you're the center of attention attention and you're not Jesus, that's a problem. And so our culture says this is what a leader is. This is what a leader does. It's the person who's at the center who gets the most attention, the most accolade. And that's what the person does. But then I want to reframe it. Now, if you were to look at this group of people and they have a vector, every single person is moving in this direction. That whole group of people is moving in that direction. Now, who's the leader? Out loud. Who would you guess? Right? The person who's closest. And this is, this is, and at this point, it's, it's, it's more obvious, right? There's, there's less, like, you're almost like, well, of course, if they're all going this way, then, then just by virtue of the position of that person, given that direction, you can see who the leader is. And see, I, here's what I would push is the leader is only the center of attention when people are going nowhere. Like if, if the person in charge is the center of attention, you already, I mean, that ought to be like, a, like, oh, okay, these people are going nowhere. They're going towards something. And, and as a result, then, they're probably being, I would say, manipulated by virtue of their vector. This person, here's what I'd push on, this person that's in a center here, this person is probably the best way I could illustrate. This person's a manipulator. This person is drawing themselves, drawing people to themselves, but not taking people anywhere. So by vir- just by virtue of the thing that they're not going where they're coming inward, that person can't be called a leader. Remember, a leader is just the person who's closest to the destination, okay? Maybe not necessarily by virtue of, like, office or aptitude or competency. I mean, there's lots of things we would want to invest in a leader and make all these things true about the leader. But ultimately, it's just the person who's closest, right? The, the tour guide's, you know, main, you know, main uh, I guess, main competency is, like, don't get us lost. Have, have, have been there before, Right? Uh, and that leads to all sorts of things that we were like, you can't take anywhere and you can't take anyone where you've never been. And so we firmly believe, like, if you're at the center of the, if you're at the center of this, then, I mean, you, you're, you're a manipulator. You're, you're really only drawing attention to yourself. Whereas we would say, and again, unless you're Jesus, Jesus is outside of ourselves. I mean, this is a gospel thing. We have an alien righteousness apart from ourselves. We point people away from us and away from themselves and we don't affirm anyone we say look look apart from yourself jesus is over there he's apart from us he's our alien righteous run to him right and that's what a godly biblical leader looks like such that we remember remember what david said you're going to give someone life and light okay well again david the david the uh the appetizer for jesus you're like oh 
who is light and life? Who talks about themselves in these kinds of terms? All right, so we know this. So we want to push people towards Jesus, away from ourselves. Now, here's where I, I want to point out something that I, I would give you kind of a quick history. This is going to be difficult for Christian leaders. Um, and, and Ben Durbin talked about this, right? He talked about uh, a little bit how, you can, how your personality can be the center of attention. And I want to show you even like people want this. They have such a flawed view of influence that they typically even want this, even in the pastor. So let me, uh, let me give you this way. Like the history of, let's say, the structure of, of, of the church architecture, right? Um, so if this was a Catholic church, if this was a Catholic basilica or cathedral, what would be in the very center? Can someone help me? Maybe have some nose Catholicism has it. What's in the very center up on the stage in the middle of the whole thing? What is it? Table, right? Good. Hang on to that one. You're, you're next, right? So it's the table because the center, and that's why they don't call when you're Catholic, you don't go to worship. You go to mass, right? Because the center of the experience is an interaction, a communion with the transubstantiated body and blood of Christ, right? Body and blood of Christ is present. Here it is, right? And, and so that's the center. And, it would, and I agree. Like, if the transubstantiated body and blood of Christ were there, that should be the center of attention, right? If the Jesus is there, don't distract, right? Make him the center. And because they believe that, that's the center of their architecture. Now, beyond Catholicism, there's a, it starts to get different, okay? So in Protestant churches... What is the center of the stage? What's at the center of the thing? The pulpit, right? Because we, this is, this is a fairly important month for us to say the pulpit's at the center. It's kind of a big deal. 500 years, actually 600 years ago, 200 people got killed because they said, no, the, the Bible's at the center. They were burned alive as heretics. And, and according to the Council of Trent, we're still all anathema because we don't recognize the magisterium or teaching authority as the center of attention. We think the Bible is. Now, this is even in, even in churches that do this differently, like Wesleyan or Methodist, or they will have two pulpits, and they may still have the table. Those are usually sacramental. Uh, they have a sacramental view of, of communion, for example, um, and they may still have the table or a, or a font there. In a big Baptist church, right, the middle up in the back here is, is a baptistry, right? Now, they're not shy about what they value. But even in other churches, like you'll have two pulpits, one over here on the side, one on the other side. One of them is for announcements, and the other one is set apart for the declaration of God's word. And so structurally, we're saying the center of, the t- of attention for Protestants is the, word, the pulpit. It is the declaration of God's word. Here's the problem. In, in current culture, as the church typically works, um, and, and I'm not, you think I'm going to be a crotchety old man and say we should bring back wooden pulpits, it's not. Instead of, what we've done is we've removed the pulpit from the center of the worship service and we've replaced it with a personality. And so that's why, I mean, we use a music stand or a little table, right? But if you're really honest with yourselves, we've, we haven't just like removed the pulpit. We've replaced it. Now, this is church planners. We don't get big wooden furniture. I mean, I would recommend you investing in that. You, you guys, yeah, good luck with that. Good luck. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to pick that fight. What, what I want to say is most often we've removed, whether, and this is important, whether it's in the worship, uh, the, the leading of musical corporate singing, declaration of the gospel and song, or in preaching, we've kind of removed the pulpit and said there's a personality at the center. And people actually want this. They love this. We love to build up and tear down celebrities. And so this is a big deal for us because this is something people actually will, no one will push you on. And, and there's kind of this, this misnomer that only a jerk would begin to measure their own influence or think about how important they really are. And I want to push back on that. In fact, I would say you can, and in fact, you should measure the influence you have. And it's actually easier than you think. 
there are tangible ways to do it. Now, do so carefully. But here's one of them. Like, if right now, if I gave you five minutes with your cell phone, and I said, get as many people here at this address as you possibly can, how many do you think you could get? Right? Now, now the, the, where part of this falls apart is not all of us live here, right? And so, it, but here's, it, you think about it. Just, it I, wouldn't, I still don't take it back. Maybe if you don't live here, right? How many people could you get here? Could you, like, I have five minutes with it. I have, I have a little bit of time, social media, text message. I can get as many people here as possible. Do you get it? You can measure influence. And we have different capacities. Different people could get different, pe- I mean, different amounts of people together. Right? You, there's people in our church, you give them 10 seconds with some social media, and you could have a crowd. Right? And maybe for the rest of us, not so much. You can measure influence. And, and the way we're talking about it right now is in breadth. And here's what I would ask you. If I had gave you five minutes with a cell phone, what would you do to get people here? Just think in your own mind. How would you, how would you get people here? What would you say? What method would you use? And what you, are, what you just realized now, like here, if that answer is how you view and value leadership. That's what compels you. So if you were like, it's urgent, I need you here. What do you use? You use like urgency, right? If you were like, oh, if, I mean, if you, imagine if, you, if your first thought was, I'm going to make up a tragedy to get people here, that's how you think leadership works, right? Or if you were, I mean, just think, or, if, or maybe if you were like, there's this awesome thing going on, come. Like, th- think about, that's how you probably lead people. And so you should, you should think seriously about how much influence you have, the breadth of it, and what you typically think is valuable, how you would get a bunch of people to do stuff. But you should also think about the depth of influence you have. Think about it this way. Um, maybe, not, maybe, maybe your average mom couldn't get a bunch of people here, but they have a depth of influence over the people they care for, right? And you can and should think about it. You should assess that. You should think about what kind of influence you have. As a church leader, that kind of influence, we, we don't only think in breadth, because that wouldn't be helpful. We think in depth. Because as a church planting network, we may have to go to a person in our church and say, I think God's calling you to plant a church. Now, how deep, how deep would your influence have to be for that to be valid? Right? So we should be thinking about these things. Wielding influence badly is destructive. It's terrible. Um, And this is important because if you want to measure this now, you just watch people how they use social media. Right? They clearly, like this person clearly isn't taking their influence seriously. They're just posting, you know, idiocy. And this is, this is more painfully visible than you can imagine. Um, the places, uh, there are places you can kind of look at this, but, but what, what, when we see a person who has influence, I want to think about not just the way that you influence people, but the people in your church influence others. And I would categorize an influential person in kind of two different ways. A person who is potential, like a potential leader, and a person who is an uncommitted actual. Right? You've got a potential leader and an, un, an, an uncommitted actual leader. And so if you have people in your church that are underperforming, in the end, if this is you, if you're underperforming, this is, this is think of in these terms, right? So one, one kind of underperforming is, like a, is someone who's raw, right? New believer, doesn't know theology. They're, they're going to hit and miss, but they, it's because they're new to this. They've got a lot of learning to do. And we get excited about that because there's a lot of potential. But the other side, I would say, you need to be very, very wary of. It's the person who is actually gifted, but is simply uncommitted. 
Like they're sitting on gifts. And you ought to be able to think of this. Now, here's, here's how this plays out in our church, okay? Our church is mostly, I, don't, I use terms carefully, our church is mostly people born after 1980, okay? Um, I mean, just broadly. And one of the things we're going to talk about in a second here is what we call helicopter parenting, right? This is the idol of our day. And we'll talk about this in a second here. The idol of our day is don't talk to people about how they parent. Because that's the idol, like, don't tell me how to, you, you saying I'm a bad parent, right? And so, so helicopter parenting, people find, people find their identity in their children, and it's called helicopter parenting. They hover, right? Okay? So, almost every single person over the age of 50 in our church is a parent that has come to our church following their grown children. I'm not, every single one of them. Um, and the majority of, I, I mean, I'm wary on this for this reason. The majority of them are still helicopter parenting. They're still, I mean, they have 20 year old, I'm going to say this carefully, kids that are not grown ups that are still, they have not cut the umbilical cord the second time and they have followed their kids to our church. And it's funny back in the nineties when we had big, like blow up, uh, youth events, they're like, let's reach the kids and then we'll reach their families. Right. And it, you know, it was hit or miss. But that's, that's what our church is, right? And I encourage you to talk to some people in our church this way. All the adults, I can't think of any adults that have just like come that haven't been invited by their kids. And here's what we find. There's several of them that come and some of them are like, they're legit. Like they got degrees. Some of them used to be pastors. Some of them, I mean, it's like, it's just a, a big, a big list of like qualifications, like actually legitimate people, like degrees in theology, you know, successful professionally, but they are so leery to be a part of a disciple making church. And I want to tell you, like, be careful. When you see someone who's underperforming because they're just like raw, you should, you should love that. You get excited about seeing God shape that. That person's humble, teachable. They're learning their own influence. But the person who, who has actual, like they're actually influential, they have actual aptitude, they have actual competencies, but they're underperforming. There is a deeper problem. And I would say that person is probably not a leader. That person is a manipulator. Otherwise, they'd be wielding their influence rightly, right? And they, or they would just go be a part of a church they can actually buy into. Instead, they kind of want to like, I'll give what I want. Because in the end, my influence is about me, and I'm going to wield it selfishly. Right? So beware. Like leaders, people come in. Um, the way we talk about it in our church is somebody says, I want to preach. Like, I was already thinking, you probably can't preach for a long time, but whatever I was thinking, I just added a year to it, right? Like, if, if I, I, was, I met you and I'm like, I think you probably could preach in a year and a half. If that person goes, can I preach? Like, that's two and a half. And every time you ask after that, I'm going to add another year. Because, like, if you don't understand influence in a godly way, remember, you will, you will build in, oh, you will build in, like, uh, people want to kill you. They want to spear you, is what David says. So here's, I'll just give you a big, um, this is not new for us, but maybe you've seen this. We, we steal this from, um, from some of, uh, from Acts 29 leadership resources. Uh, Rob Barris, um, at Redeemer in, in Washington. If you just think about your influence and how we can measure it and should wield it well, you have influence at least over yourself. You at least have, we, we think I'm in the three T's in our church, time, treasure, and talent. God's given you time. What are you doing with it? Whose glory is coming from your time, your treasure? Like you actually have, none of you are naked, so you must have something, right? What are you doing with that money? Who's being glorified by it? And then your talent, like where's your best effort going? What do you, what do you procrastinate on, but what do you actually double down on? And that kind of influence 
can be measured. And in fact, if you think about it, this, this way, like a leader of self will start to lead others, right? They'll be a contagious magnetic leader. They'll start leading people to where they're going. And for us, that's being changed by the gospel. And that person typically starts leading other leaders. And then that person can lead an organization. And that person, if they're doing that well, will start leading a movement. Now, incidentally, this is the first parts of this is the stages of a church plant, right? A person that just like, hey, do you love Jesus and prioritize his lordship in your life? Cool. You've met the minimum bar of being a disciple, right? And then after that, like, oh, well, then you start leading others. Being a fisher of men, the ABCs of following Jesus. We're going to leverage what we have and lead others to Jesus, right? And a lot of people, this is a healthy place to live. But God starts to, again, give us kinds of influence that then you have leaders who emerge that not only are they leading others well, but they start multiplying and leading other leaders. And then when that happens, they become a leader of an organization. We would see elder at this level, right? This is elder level for us. And then there's guys that are really, like God has really gifted them. And they're, and not only they're just leading their organization, but they're leading other leaders of other organizations, right? This is, I mean, think of in our network, guys that do this well, right? Guys that influence our church or, I mean, this is, this is John Piper. This is, you know, this is R.C. Sproul. This is Matt Chandler, right? This person is not just influencing an organization. They're influencing other leaders who lead the organizations, right? Stuff, this stuff, these, these people quote these people on Sunday, right? By, by quote, I mean steal, right? T.S. Eliot. The worst of us plagiarize, the best of us steal. So th- this, I just, even if you've never seen this before, this is a very healthy way to think about quantifying your own influence, and even at this level, if you start messing up here, there's a massive casualty up, up and down the ladder. Massive. Right? Like if I, I mean, I, I blow it over here and it kills, it kills maybe something like this or harms maybe something like this. You got someone down here who blows it up here. Massive movements get shot down. Right? So it, you can and should think about your influence. If you don't, you, you, you're, you're not being careful. You're not being a good steward of the influence you have. And I don't mean like arrogantly, like I'm a big deal. I could get a bunch of people here. Or like false humility, like, well, no one likes me. They're both a form of pride, right? And that, again, that, that if you start to think that way, here you are, okay? That's you, all you care about is what people think about you, right? So, so here's what I would add to that. You can and should think about your influence, but now this. Leaders exert influence with their weakness intentionally in full view. Manipulators seek to minimize and even hide their weakness. Remember, this is a gospel issue. We believe that the truth actually sets us free, even if it's a hard truth, even if it's the truth that you shouldn't be a leader. A manipulator will hide those weaknesses. Remember, God's power is perfected in weakness. This is a gospel issue for us. Now, you can go one or two ways on this, right? You can be a John Maxwell, and you should think about your weaknesses, and you should, like, build them up, right? Or you could be like Wayne Cordero, and he says, ignore your weaknesses, never waste your time on your weaknesses, get other people around you that are better than you, and then just work in your strengths, okay? So I'm not going to make a case one way or the other. You do whatever you want to with your weaknesses. I don't care what you do with your weaknesses. What you are not allowed to do is ignore them. You have to do something with them. And this is what I was like, even now, it is visible, right? My weaknesses are visible to you right now. And I can either try to hide them. I can try to pretend like they don't exist and manipulate you. And want, I mean, I want you to like me and not think that I'm weak. Or I can really believe the gospel 
that when you see my weaknesses, you ought to marvel in how glorious Jesus is to use a putz like me, right? This is what we do. This is, so you do whatever you want to with your weaknesses, like work on them, team, you know, build a team around them, whatever. Don't ignore them. That's how you'll harm people. Manipulators will try to justify and hide their weaknesses. So here's what I would, I would ask you to probe you on some of this. How do you deal with your weaknesses? Who knows about them? Remember, the gospel allows us to no longer get caught. We confess. We don't get caught. We confess. There's nothing you can confess Jesus doesn't already know. So, like, what do you do with your weaknesses? Do you get caught in your weaknesses more often than you confess them? The way that weaknesses tend to, like, be exposed in the places where, like, the fruit of the Spirit are missing, like inconveniences and impatience. So what do you do with inconvenience? When something doesn't work out, do you see inconveniences as like an opportunity to pray and seek God's work to be displayed in your weakness? Or do you see inconveniences as something to fix immediately? Remember, this is a gospel issue. The truth, even inconvenient truths, set us free. This is what we believe. Uh, At the end, yeah, I'll come. I'll, yeah, all of these have really painful anecdotes. So I'll be happy to try not to weep, but I won't promise. Uh, fourth one, uh, the best leaders are the best followers. The worst manipulators are not under anyone's authority. Uh, don't, uh, Spurgeon says it this way, the best, especially in preaching. He says, um, he says, the man who quotes no one will never himself be quoted. Right? Cause, cause that man thinks he knows everything. Right? But, but a person who knows they're under authority is the person you should trust. I shared this with our church a while back. This is what makes me afraid of Donald Trump. I don't know whose authority he really respects. I don't know. I mean, again, I'm not, it's not a I'm for or against the man. We voted for him. We, want, we obviously, as a culture, like that. Like, I do what I want. I mean, that's our thing, okay? Like, that's, and so, like, that, but you should not trust anyone who is in authority who is not also under authority. Bible paints a massive picture of this. Jesus, we saw, I mean, there's been great illustrations. Jesus is our senior pastor. He's the chief shepherd. We're just underlings. We are stewarded. We, we have a borrowed, stewarded authority, Right? Like if I tell you, thou shalt not kill, right? You have to obey me. You have to. But not because I have any intrinsic authority, and that's why I use the King James to show that. You, you know that comes from someone, right? That come, well, that's clearly not from him, and, and there's an authority there, but it's not my own. I just wield it as one who stewards what God's given me. And that's where we find our authority. Beware of anyone who does not see themselves under another authority. You want to scare somebody, just like ask them, who's your pastor? It'll mess you them up, right? Specifically, if college ministries, parachurch people, hey, who's your pastor? No, not your supervisor, your pastor. Oh, you don't have one? Oh, good luck, right? It's, it's again, anecdote, right? People are safer because of a leader's influence. People are in danger because of a manipulator's influence. Uh, I saw this really well. A pastor friend of mine, um, we're sitting around, and his wife said something to him that just really rocked me, just, just wrecked me to pieces. And she said, you know, the times I feel safest are the times that I know you're following the Lord closely. And I mean, that just wrecked me. And it, and it became like the times where my wife and family are in the greatest danger are when I'm not under the authority of Christ. I'm not living for his glory. When I see myself under him, that's, that's when I stop manipulating them for my own glory, drawing them to myself. That's when I actually start leading people to, to health and to safety. And a person who doesn't have that is actually putting people in danger. 
And so the way I would, I would probe you on this, are people safer because of your influence? Like, are people being protected because of your influence? A leader, a godly leader, again, who is light in life, is going to protect people, not harm people. Uh, number six, leaders look ahead. Manipulators only look around. Um, the way we talk about this is like uh, a good leader has, uh, you might have heard of this, um, this is a stolen, it's like Dave Kraft uses this, leaders that last, that kind of stuff. You've got, you've got the cards on the table, table and the picture on the wall, right? Like the cards on the table is what you actually have. The picture on the wall is the thing you're aspiring to. And this is a big deal for us as leaders. Um, we were just like, wait, where are you taking people? What are you doing with your influence? Um, you know, are, are you only focused on what you have and you're hovering over that? Or only, are you only focused on what might be so you're ignoring what you have? A good leader sees them both. Doesn't just look at what they have, they look where they're going. The way you see this in, in leadership development or assessment in the life of the church often is that we, we tend to prioritize uh, like competencies and aptitude over character. And, and character is more about like where we're going ultimately, whose glory uh, is going gonna, is gonna to be, uh, gonna be exalted from, from our lives. Um, the competency isn't. So a lot of people, they, and we, with worship leaders, we see this a lot. Like you, they're like, oh, yeah, I can play songs and sing music. And, and that's like if I came to you and I said, can I borrow your car? I have a driver's license in this state. You know, I have this much experience. Um, and you might say yes and give me the keys to your car. But a whole different kind of question was if I came to you and I said, Hey, I'm going to give us, I'm going to, let's get in the car. We're going to go over here to Vinyl Taco. It's just on my mind at the moment. Sorry. Um, hop in with me. Give me your keys. I'm going to take you to Vinyl Taco and then we'll be back in an hour and a half. One of them is just about, I have the competency to do this. And the other one is like, here's where we're going. And so the way I would ask people is like, where are you taking people? Where are you ultimately taking people? Okay, so you're charismatic, you're magnetic, you're gifted, you're a musician, you're a great singer, whatever. Like, you, you have that. Where are you taking people? Where, where are they going? Where will they be at the end of this? After, after you've exerted some influence, what will they look like at the end of it? And ultimately, a leader thinks critically about where we're going and measures their success or failure based on, did you get closer? As opposed to just, like, how many people do I have around me? Uh, this is a big one. Um, leaders establish boundaries between their problems and the problems of others. Manipulators blur them. Um, the way I would ask is, do you collect people who need you? Do you have a collection of people who just really, really need you? Um, think of it this way. When you're, you know this, you're in an airline um, and, and, and you're sitting with a child. Have you ever done this? And they say, when the mask falls out, like, because you might lose cabin pressure, they say, if you're sitting with a small child, who do you put the mask on first, yourself or the child? Yourself, yeah. Because if, if, if you're like, oh, you first, then you'll both die. I learned this. There was a, um, a guy who was, uh, he trains lifeguards um, in, uh, in, in the West Coast, and he was talking about how um, when you have a lifeguard, they'll, they'll be saving people who get caught up in piers, like under these pier beams. And, and they will ask like, okay, so if a wave comes and it's about to smash you into the pier beam, what do you do? And most people who want to be, you know, cause they have like fireman complexes, they're like, you put yourself in between them and you sacrifice your body. And it's no, cause if that happens, you both die, you both drown. And now more people have to come save you. Now more people at risk. You actually take the victim's body and you put it between you and the pier. I know. But here's the thing. If you drown, it, you both die. And then now another person's got to come out and risk their life because you're both idiots. 
And so this, this is what, like, there needs to be a line between someone's mess and your mess. And I don't mean like, you know, distancing yourself, not sharing your life with the people you share the gospel with, but you ought to be able to at least think like, can I be healthy and can, can we swim to safety here? Right? And the way I would test this is like, is your church a church or is it just a big counseling ministry? And there's just a bunch of messy people who aren't getting better, but they feel better because you're around them. I mean, like, are you really actually leading people away from that? Who do you gravitate toward? You gravitate toward needy, needy people. Well, if you're not careful, you're really just like meeting and trying to like secure yourself and your own insecurities because you have problems. I mean, again, like, do you collect people who need Jesus or do you collect people who need you? And how do you measure the difference? Eight, leaders are committed to substance. Manipulators are consumed with image management. Um, we usually, this is our culture right now um, that's kind of run by, uh, it's kind of run by consumerism. We usually want to look wealthy at the expense of actually being wealthy. Have you seen this? People will go into massive debt just to look well, which is, in, in the, it's the opposite. That's like, I'm going to be poor so I will look wealthy. That same, that same kind of culture infiltrates the church. And the way I would push on, like, good leaders actually have content. There's substance. There's something that means them. They don't care just about the appearance of something. In fact, in fact, they push back that appearance to see what's really underneath it. Uh, the way I see this in some, some people, you like, I don't know, people are discipling others or leading others, and you go, hey, how'd that go? And they'll say things like, we had a really good conversation. We had a really good conversation. Okay, the goal is not to have a good conversation. Where are you taking them? Like, where ultimately are they going? Is it just that it appeared like progress? Or, or is there actually substance behind it? That means for us, discipling isn't just being able to get people to answer questions, but it's actually teaching them and helping them to have instincts for themselves. To have instincts to answer those questions. Instincts to know right from wrong. Instincts to apply the gospel themselves. Help them develop their own instincts to know the Bible, to have a gospel identity. Right? Nine, manipulators are hoarders of what is most valuable. They have a scarcity mentality. Leaders are devoted to multiplying that which is the most valuable. They have an abundance mentality. So here's why I would ask this. What are you currently hoarding and protecting? The things that you have influence over, right? Maybe even if it's just yourself, right? Time, treasure, talent. But even if it's people in your church, what are you protective of? What's the thing you don't want to lose the most? Uh, For some leaders, it's like this. Do you share your sermon prep resources or do you hide them? Like, I know my own instinct, like in the last decade, has had to change because I want to. Tr- I actually want to do this right. And I remember if I would find something awesome, instead of being like, um, "Oh, I'm going to share this with all my leaders," this help, I, I would like, I'd keep it and be like, "I don't want them to know where they got. I don't want them to think I got it somewhere else. I wish they would think it was mine." Like, do you let people see that or do you hide them? Um, the the way I would kind of illustrate this in my own life. This is where I, I see this the most is in people. I get scared, um, get terribly scared of like, if there's going to be a person who, who may not be there for very long, I, I just tend to like back off and not spend any time with them. So here's what I'd ask. How do you invest in people that you know won't be there for very long? Do you really care about only benefiting your own church, your own people, your own groups? Or is it possible that God might be using you to empower someone else to be a missionary, an awesome church member in someone else's church? Again, if, 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 if that bothers you, then you you're, you're probably just want glory for yourself. 
Um, the greatest example of this in the book of Acts, remember the seven sons of Sceva? They get beat up, beat up naked. Yeah. When you try to do things in your own power for your own glory, it just looks bad. Ten. Manipulators can't define culture apart from themselves or in any way, or excuse me, or in a way that doesn't just look like themselves. Leaders can articulate the culture they create apart from their own preferences. You see this especially in worship, um, but in our context, uh, the younger the group of people, the more that this is the case. People are really all about authenticity, but authenticity just really means I'm accountable only to myself. Right? Most people, when, when they're being authentic, they're asserting their own self-righteousness. They're saying, this is who I am, right? And you're not allowed to question it because they, they, they're authentic. And you can't question an authentic self, right? This is, this is our culture, right? But, but if that's the culture, then there's got to be something else that we're going to have to speak into it. We see this in worship. Without a clear and robust articulation of what, like, your culture looks like, your worship culture looks like, you will default to just whatever you like the most. You won't lead anyone anywhere. You'll just measure success based on how much it looks like the stuff you prefer. Um, I would say that if you're, if you're a pastor in some way, like, in what, whether you're a worship leader or a pastor, in worship you see this the most. How many songs does your congregation good at singing that you don't like? Right? There should be some. I mean, unless you're the center of attention, unless your snobby taste for music is the greatest ever. Okay, good luck. But like, like there should be other people in your congregation who love and are moved by stuff that you don't really like. Otherwise, you're only only building a culture defined by your preferences. You should be able to have a robust robust articulation of what's valuable beyond what you prefer. Like, I don't really prefer this, but I see God working in it. God's being glorified in it. I point to worship because this is the place where you can see it the most. You know, so, you know have, a, have a philosophy of worship. Have a philosophy of ministry. Have something that's robust. Because without defining it, you'll just default to like whatever feels good to you. Right? Whatever you like, that's what you'll pass on. The way we talk about it is like, however you were discipled, that's how you will disciple. Verse 11. Oh, the number, verse 11. <sighs> Manipulator right there, right? You see it? Quoted my own authority. I, I should have a quote, Jonathan, down here or something like yeah. Tweet myself, right? Manipulators get tired of saying what's right. Leaders know all the ways that their people need to be reminded of what is right. I see this in myself the worst. Um, when being right is the main thing, you get frustrated when you have to repeat yourself. Um, and I get annoyed when, like, when, you know, we've been talking about, like, having gospel fluency and sharing the gospel and building a community around the gospel for like, you know, three or four, four years now. And there are people who are just now getting it. And I get, I'm like, I've been saying this for three years, right? Like it's, that's my tendency. And if being right is the main thing, then you're right. That's a failure on my part. But if you really love people and you want to lead them, you'll see yourself as a necessary shepherd that is there to remind them. I mean, this is, uh, I, I was, you know, this is Reformation stuff, but what is it? Uh, I was reading uh, uh, some, of, some of Luther's quotes in a, in, a, in a binder, a reader that had a bunch of his stuff together. And he said, like, somebody asked him, you know, why are you preaching on justification by faith alone 20 weeks in a row? And he said, like, because they didn't remember it after the 19 weeks. And, and rather than going like, you people are idiots, you don't get it. You ought to be like, we are so prone to not understand this. And thank you. With depth. Thank God that he's given me the ability to keep leading others towards him. Um, This is slow for us because we're a parachute plant. This is especially slow. 
Um, for other church planters, the same way. And it, it, it requires throwing off of the self towards Jesus. Because when you get tired of saying it, that's usually when your best people are just starting to get it. And if you just get annoyed when people, and this is me, I'm telling you, like when you just get annoyed because people don't say it like you want it to say it, you're probably manipulating them. You probably want your own glory. Leaders use words to reveal. Manipulators use language to conceal. This is especially a flaw you see visible in journalism right now. And I'm going to use journalism quotes. Um, are, are, are people, quote, are they saying the facts? Are they using language to simplify and convey clear truth? Or are they using language to muddy it? So how do you use euphemisms? This is a good place to see this. Do you spin things? Do you minimize like the, the, the badness of something? Or do you use plain, clear language to say how sinful, how awful it really is? Because again, like if, if you're just trying to protect your image, you're manipulating people. You're using, you're using them to, to settle your own insecurities. Leaders multiply other leaders. Manipulators hinder other leaders. The way I would say this is this. Like, if it's worth doing at all, it's worth training someone else to do it. Remember I talked to you about helicopter planting, uh, parenting? Right? Psalms tell us this beautiful picture of children. Right? And this gets misquoted all the time. Right? You take, you know, children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Blessed is the one whose quiver is full. Right? Like, oh, that's beautiful. Um, and it completely misses the point that, like, what's the purpose of an arrow? But to pull it back with strength and then bury it into the heart of the enemy. Children... Helicopter parents are mission ammunition. You're not meant to use them for your own insecurities. You're not living your failures and successes out in them. They're God's gift. And I say this, the greatest, the greatest act of faith we've done so far is to plant a church. But my wife and I agree, the greatest act of faith we will, we will do will be trusting God to take care of our children. <laughs> really believing he is a better father than I am. And so this, again, are you manipulating them out of fear? Are you creating a culture around this? Because if there's a gospel, if there's a gospel presentation that we can give in the world, it's to release children to, into the mission. Like your kids might be persecuted and then revel in that because blessed is the one whose quiver is full, right? The other way you see this when you're multiplying leaders, like um, stop saying that they're not ready. Uh, one of this, this, I, for the longest time, ministry for me was about nailing it. I want to get good enough to nail it. And, and so, you know, the tendency for people raising up leaders is to be like, well, they can't do it as good as I can, right? Well, of course, you have a seminary degree, right? You have experience. If they, if they can do it better than you can, you're a loser. Stop doing it, right? Like, good for you. You've trained for this. These are people who have not trained to do this. They shouldn't be able to do it as good as you. But if it's all about you, then that's a problem. But if, if there's a way that you can, like, release them, launch them in to do this, I mean, like, of course I'm better at it. I've got 15 years of experience. If the people in my church are better at me than this, or, I mean, if they're as good as I am, that's a failure on my part. I ought to be better. But it ought not be about that. It ought to be like, okay, can they, can they come up to a, a, a level of excellency that God has empowered them to have themselves? Think about it this way. The apostles didn't step in to replace Jesus. Like, they didn't step in to do things as well as Jesus, right? Quite the opposite. 
So if it's worth doing, it's worth training someone else to do. So I would say this, like if, if what you're doing doesn't have a backup, why? In the corporate world, that's job security. But I would say in the church, that's manipulation. You're holding people back. And this is where I see it in my own life. Um, I, have a, I lead a gospel community, and, uh, and it's, I, I, it's really hard to be a gospel community apprentice leader under me. Um, but then I have to be willing to say, like, hey, I'm going to be gone this next week so this person can succeed without me in the room. Because if I'm in the I mean, I just, I wouldn't want to, you know, I mean, it's same, like, you know, I think if Steve has coached me, like, it, you know, if I was leading a group of people while Steve is in the room, I'd be like, ha, 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 right? I'd like to think I wouldn't. But if when that, when that person becomes a hindrance, there's obviously some, there's some issues going on there, right? And so here's what I would say. The gospel protects us from the manipulator. The gospel protects us from the manipulator. Ephesians 6, the full armor of God says this way, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. If you want to be protected from the manipulator, if you want to protect people from manipulators, even yourself, you do it with the gospel. Let me close with this. Um, Meg Meeker is a, uh, a pediatrician sociologist as well. does some social psychology stuff. And she wrote a book called strong fathers, strong daughters. I have two little girls, six and eight. And what she shared with me is really powerful. It is, it, it hit tons of issues in my own life, but essentially this, everything my daughters will believe about a man, they'll learn from me for better or for worse. Right? So if I don't pray, if I'm not a man of faith, what are they going to expect of a man one day? Like that's optional, right? But here's the scarier part. If I don't show affection to my daughters, if I don't love them, physical touch, caress them, have intimacy with them, hold them, hug them, right? What are they going to do with the first guy who comes along and puts, wants to put their hands on my daughters? Right? So if I don't affirm my daughters and build them up, what are they going to do when the first sweet talker comes along and says nice things? And the goal is, as a father, that when, a, when, my, when, someone, when some man comes along and is ready to pursue my daughters, they're going to come along and they're not going to find any weaknesses on my part. And if they're like, I want to put my hands on this girl, then they're going to go, well, no, my, my daddy has loved me and touches me, hugs me. I know what healthy physical affection looks like between a man and a woman. I've seen it my whole life. That doesn't impress me. You're going to have to come with something else. And if they start like sweet talking, right? Tell my daughters nice things. They're going to go like, this doesn't impress me. My father edifies me, builds me up, speaks truth into me all the time. You're going to have to bring something else, right? And if I'm going to protect, again, if I'm going to protect my daughters from the manipulator who's going to promise all these things, then I'm going to have to instill these things and model these things in, in them to begin with. And I'm going to have to show them that ultimately Jesus is the better, to quote our, our conference, right? G- Jesus is the one that's better. And so that when a man comes along and wants to tempt them with these things, then they're not going to be tempted. They're going to be like, I already have this. You're not giving me anything I don't have. Unless you lead me to Christ-likeness, I, I, I don't, I'm not with you. Well, now you know where this breaks down. I'm just a sinful dad. But when you start to apply that to your church or even to my children, this is what you find out. This is what I would argue. The enemy comes and offers to people 
who are insecure and longing, all of these things. And a person who knows and believes in the finished work of Jesus knows there's nothing that the enemy can offer you that you don't already freely have in Christ. Nothing. And when you know that, you can lead people away from manipulative, manipulative tactics, right? And when they know that, they're even protected from you. And they know, ultimately, they need to look apart from themselves to Jesus. The gospel will do this. The gospel causes us to have some health in this area. So as I began, since there's nothing that the enemy can offer you that you do not already have freely in Christ, you can wield your influence rightly. If you know that you can't give anything to people that they don't already freely have in Christ, then you know that the best thing you have to give them is not yourself, but him. The way I saw this is when I looked back um, in my own life, I saw my own like dating history before I met my wife. And uh, this is, again, I want you to see my weakness on this. I had a history. I had dated seriously girls that had massive daddy issues. And at the time, I didn't note it, right? I didn't, I didn't see it. No one pointed this out. But they had massive daddy issues. And I came along and was the sweet talker who said just the right thing at the right time. <laughs> not, not to lead them to Jesus, right? But to manipulate them into glorifying me. And my prayer is that you and I will equip people, wield our influence rightly to the point where, since influence is a God-given gift, we will glorify him ultimately by the way that we point other people towards him. Because we know there's nothing that the enemy can offer you or these people that Christ hasn't already freely given to them. So there's my 13 points. Um, I want to open up to some questions. Uh, I've got, if I can illustrate something, we've got about six more minutes. So uh, I don't want to waste anybody's time. Um, but if there's no questions, we'll dismiss. But if, if you have any questions at all, I would love to, um, to clarify a point. There's something like, I didn't, man, I didn't see eye to eye on that one. What do you mean by that? I would love to, to help clarify that. So. You, and, and, and Langston, you had one, so. You said, can you give me an example? Okay, all right. No, no, go for it. He didn't remember it, so we'll come back to it. I'll, I'll scroll. Yeah, I'm going to repeat, since we're recording, I'm going to repeat your question so, and also so I get it right. You said you, you run into leaders that say you can't show your weaknesses. Um, how do you respond to that? To that leader or how do you like model my response to my church? Okay. Um, I would ask good questions. I would be like, you know, I would just ask them, I'd quote the Bible and be like, hey, you know, what's your scallops, right? What's the thorn in your side that in the end points you to the, like the sufficiency of God's grace? Um, I'd want to have that conversation because it's likely this is not a gospel believing pastor. I know that's an oxymoron, but good luck. Welcome. Welcome to American evangelicalism, right? Um, like we, I mean, we, we really believe like if, if the truth sets us free and his power is made perfect in weakness, then that's something we don't, we don't just expect that of our people. We actually see that that's our own story, right? God, anyway, so I would hopefully ask good questions and not, you know, 
hopefully share the gospel with a pastor, right? Write that down. Tweet that. Um, but how do you model it with your people? I would just say, like, I don't know, like, again, assume all your flaws are on display. So my people, I hope they know, like, I mean, I'm not hide them. My tendency is going to be toward arrogance. My tendency is going to be towards, um, you know, like a, a haughtiness. And so I just have to be the lead repenter in my church. You know, so I guess Ben Durbin had said that as well. I mean, like, I think I talked about, like, I'm, you know, follow me. And my goal, I shared this out of First Thessalonians, is, like, make it to where the people following you would have to sin to step out from behind you. And if they're following you, they're going to look more like Jesus, not just you. But if they do have to step out from behind you, then you still want to lead. You just lead with confession, lead with repentance. Be the first one who says, man, I, I did that wrong. Or, um, and so I've had to apologize for stuff. I'll say, I, mean, I don't know, I'll give, I'll give an example. Um, I'll say things that are just dumb off the top. Of my, I mean, I think this is a safer place to kind of be mouthy, but like it's not healthy in front of my church um, in a way that, and that, that can be harmful. And I remember, so there's a guy here, there's a, he's a potential elder. His name's Andy. Wave your hand, Andy. And he could get 5,000 people here with social media in five minutes. That's his influence, okay? Um, and he, and I, he was, he was, I was leading worship, and he started drumming. He was, he was playing the cajon. He's phenomenal at that. And we were kind of a small group of people. And, and I just said, like, and our handsome drummer. Like, I called him that in front of our church. And it's not helpful. This is a single man leading other people in my church. And I didn't validate his leadership. I kind of... And in a lot of ways, like, demeaned it, you know, or, or trivialized it at the very best. And I just had to, I had to go to apologize. Like, man, that, that's not, this is not helpful. I didn't love and honor you in that. I, I kind of, you know, just kind of, like, patted you on the head. Like, that's not, that's not helpful. And I had to, you know, apologize. I've, it's several times I've had to apologize for making, you know, just, hey, that wasn't helpful. Will you forgive me that? So I don't know what it's like for you, but that's what it's like for me. I'll regularly have to lead in repentance and go, I was hasty in this way, or I was, you know, I was, again, I was, I was being manipulative and scared and driven by my own approval rather than what was healthy. Brett. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Well, then let's. Ah, I do. SiouxFallsConnection.com forward slash leadership. That's where that document is. And then our, we tried to get the longest possible URL in the world, but it was taken. So uh, this, we, had to live, we had to live with that one. And my email is Jonathan at SiouxFallsConnection.com. Hey, I love you. I love you so much. I love the influence of this network on my church. There are healthy things in the life of my church. Um, and, and they're a direct result of the people in this room loving us and caring for me. So I'm honored to get a chance to, to speak here in front of some of the guys that, that shaped me and, and love them dearly for that. So, um, thank you for, for your time. I hope it's, it's been a blessing. If you have any questions, email me, we can follow up and I'll apologize for anything dumb I said.